0: Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink air, we'll explore the specialty of critical care neurosurgery.
1: As an institution, having a neurosurgeon in the ICU is important because ICU care is really interdisciplinary. It requires having people from multiple different backgrounds to treat these complex
0: conditions. An orthopedic surgeon goes over some of the most common sports injuries, and a pediatrician and ethicist shares her research on bias in teaching.
2: One of the limitations of medicine is that we're always learning new things and updating and replacing old information based on new evidence. So that means that right now, despite despite our very best efforts, we might be teaching things as biological facts that are actually still pretty deeply rooted in bias.
0: All that, and then we'll have a visit from the Healing Muse after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink Air, your chance to explore health, science and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, an orthopedic surgeon talks about common sports injuries. Then a pediatrician in Ephesus will share her research on bias in teaching. But first, we'll learn about critical care neurosurgery and the patients who are cared for by these specialists. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Upstate has a new director of critical care neurosurgery, and I'm speaking with him about this specialty. Dr. Timothy Butler is an assistant professor of neurosurgery and of neurology at Upstate, and he's medical director of critical care neurosurgery. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Butler. Hello. I noticed your undergraduate degree is in biomedical engineering. How did that lead you into neurosurgery?
1: So I actually have two undergraduate degrees. One's in uh, biomedical engineering, and one is in, in classics. The, the classics was just something I, you know, had a passion from uh, from from high school. Uh, but I, you know, I found studying Greek and Latin very useful, uh, you know, going into medicine because a lot of the, the the words have have similar roots. Uh, the biomedical engineering I, I kind of stumbled into. To an engineering field because my, my dad always wanted all of the kids to have you know a stable career to fall back on, uh, and he was an engineer. Um, I had always wanted to go into medicine, but you know getting into medical school can be difficult, so uh, that was kind of my my uh, my fallback option if things didn't work out.
0: Well, I saw that during medical school, and you went to Case Western in Cleveland, right? Yes. So I saw during your medical school, you at the same time got a master's degree in something called applied anatomy.
1: Yeah. It, what is uh, that? In, uh, in, my, in my medical school, they had this uh, uh, MDMS program, uh, which allowed you to uh, do extra coursework in anatomy uh, at the same time as the regular medical school curriculum uh, and earn a master's in anatomy um, concurrent with uh, the medical degree Um and I found that kind of very helpful in uh, in in helping learn the basic anatomy. I think you know doing that degree also kind of pushed me more towards pursuing a surgical career uh, as opposed to uh, uh, doing a strictly uh, medical medical specialty.
0: Interesting. Uh, Well, now after medical school, how many years of education have you had since graduating from medical school?
1: So, uh, I did a neurosurgery residency, actually completed here at Upstate, and the residency program uh, uh, for, for neurosurgery is seven years in length. Uh, during uh, my, my fifth year, which is kind of a, a research elective type of year, um, I, I chose to do a fellowship in uh, neurocritical care uh, so that uh, after I graduate, I could uh, take care of the critically ill patients uh, in the neuroICU. In addition to my regular functions, uh, uh, taking care of uh, neurosurgical patients.
0: So what kind of person do you think is best suited for neurosurgery? Do you, have you thought about the person you are and how, you know, what your character traits are, are most helpful in neurosurgery?
1: I, I think in, in neurosurgery, it's a, a difficult career to go into because uh, there's a, the, a lot of patients who uh, uh, who you get uh you know, not so much you know from electively but the patients who come in on call they're they're very sick when they come in they have many many deficits either in the speech or motor deficits from strokes or even um or, or tumors and uh you know these patients um are, are coming to you uh during a, a difficult time in their life uh, and not all of the patients that you're treating are, are going to have good outcomes so i think part of going into neurosurgery is that you have to uh, be able to uh, treat difficult patients, patients who may not always have good uh, clinical outcomes and, and be able to, you know, have the you know, kind of resolve to, and, and, and compassion uh, to, to um, make it through uh, the difficult times that, that these people go through. I, I think in addition to, to that in the surgical, you know, we, we deal in um, you, know, you know, millimeters uh, can, can make a difference between causing uh, deficits in patients uh, and, and, and patients having uh, improved clinical outcomes.
0: Right. Wow. I imagine no two days are the same for you as Director of Critical Care Neurosurgery, but can you tell us what your day is typically like?
1: So my, my typical day, you know, it, it depends on uh, whether I'm on the uh, uh, and the, the, the ICU service or whether, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, one of my off weeks from ICU. Uh, so, you know, if I'm on the ICU service, I you know, get into the hospital, you know, uh, early in the morning and I stay pretty much the entire day, uh, you know, rounding on patients, talking to patients' families, uh, and then, you know, of course, whatever, whatever physician loves, writing the notes <laughs> uh, <laughs> for, for the day.
0: And let me interrupt. Uh, when you say ICU, is that intensive care unit or is it a special unit for neurologically uh, affected?
1: So, most of our, our patients are in a, a special neuro, uh, intensive care unit called the neuro ICU. Uh, here at Upstate, we have one of the largest uh, uh, neuro ICUs kind of regionally. Um, uh, you know, it has uh, 27 ICU beds. Uh, which is, is quite a, a, a large uh, intensive care unit, uh, especially one that's just dedicated to, to the care of, uh, of patients with neurologic injuries. All
0: right. So you have some days where you're operating on patients.
1: Yeah, some days I'm operating on day- patients. The days that I don't, uh, uh, that I'm not scheduled to uh, be in the intensive care unit, uh, I, uh, I I do have uh, elective patients that I see in, in clinic and operate electively, like, uh, you know, pretty much every other uh, neurosurgeon.
0: So what are uh, some of the types of conditions that you find yourself treating most frequently?
1: So, you know, most, well, it, it, it depends, you know, in the ICU, uh, there are some ICU-specific uh, conditions that I find myself commonly treating, you know, uh, uh These are people who have very large strokes, either you know ischemic strokes or hemorrhagic strokes, uh, who need kind of emergency surgery um, uh, to to survive. Uh, And uh, and then you know also when I'm on on the ICU service, I also frequently have patients who develop a condition called hydrocephalus, where they they need to have either uh, a, a temporary Drain called an external ventricular drain or a permanent drain called a shunt uh, put in uh, uh, to prevent fluid from building up. And my non-ICU uh, weeks, you know, I see a variety of patients in, in clinic, whether they have brain tumors or degenerative spine conditions uh, or you know, normal pressure hydrocephalus. Uh, all, all of those patients, um, you know, I, I see and treat in treatment clinic as well.
0: So from what I understand, Upstate has not had a neurosurgeon in this position before overseeing neuro, uh, critical care for neurosurgery. Um, what, what does this mean for the institution?
1: So um, I, I'm kind of the first neurosurgeon trained in, in uh, critical, uh, specifically in critical care management uh, for, for neuro ICU. Uh, so neurosurgeons, as part of their training, a lot of their patients are in the neuro ICU, but over the last you know, 20, 30 years ago, has become this new um, medical subspecialty called neurocritical care, um, where you have an intensivist team like a, a medical ICU or a surgical ICU. but in this case just focus specifically on treating neurologic conditions are, that are critically ill. Most of the uh, neurointensivists are, are trained as neurologists, um, but you know there are some you know, anesthesiologists uh, uh, as well uh, trained train in a subspecialty. You know, as an institution, having a neurosurgeon in the ICU is important because ICU care is really interdisciplinary. It requires uh, uh, having people from multiple different backgrounds to treat these complex conditions. And having, you know, a neurosurgeon there, I, I kind of bring uh, to the unit and you know, uh, bring to the collaborative effort, you know, some, some more uh, surgically-oriented treatments. As opposed to uh, some of the more medically oriented treatments like, uh, that other intensivists are, are more comfortable in training.
0: So, what would you say to someone who has a loved one who's being cared for on the neuro uh, intensive care unit? Is there anything that loved ones can do to help?
1: Well, I, I think it's it's you know it's a little difficult now given the you know current restrictions with COVID um, with visitation hours, but I think you know just being able to, to visit loved ones is very important for those who are recovering. Uh, what I always tell uh, family members when they see loved ones who are in the ICU, uh, especially the neuro, uh, neuro ICU, is that many of these conditions, many of these deficits that patients may have while they're in the ICU will get better with time. Uh, it just is not uh, a time frame that w- we will see a difference from hour to hour and day to day. You know, these neurologic conditions when people have large strokes, when people have, you know, weakness from, from uh, tumors or bleeding, uh, when people have traumatic brain injury, you know, these types of deficits take a long time for patients to get better. Uh, and, and so we really deal with not even days or weeks, but really, you know, uh, months and, and, and couple of years for patients to to get back to normal. So I I would, I counsel them to to kind of be patient and and listen to to what the physicians are saying, because sometimes it's very difficult, you know, even for the physicians to know if a patient has a a poor exam, whether or not they're going to recover, especially when we're dealing with, you know, kind of a a short term, um, you know, a a short period of time in, in the intensive care unit. Um, but what I can say is that having you know, seen some some of these patients, you know, several months or even a year or two out, uh, some patients do have good outcomes, even if they look very sick and have very poor exams.
0: That's encouraging. Well, I understand you've got a research interest in traumatic brain injury. Can you tell us a little about the work you've done in that in that area?
1: So. Uh, one of my interests is, is, is in traumatic brain injury. I, I have an you know, interest in, 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 in kind of the, the, the surgical management and uh, the um, ICU management of, of these patients. Um, you know, some of the recommendations for, for patients who have severe traumatic brain injury is that they have what we call intracranial pressure monitoring. And these are monitors that go into the head for those who are, have severe brain injury. You know, these people who are, have severe brain injury uh, essentially are in you know, kind of a coma um, from, from the, the injury. Uh, and, you know, we, we put these monitors in to make sure that the pressure doesn't get too high. But, you know, one of the kind of, you know, gray areas in, in medicine and in neurosurgery is, you know, what to do when the pressure gets high. We have some medications that can help keep the pressure low and we know that doing a large uh, surgery to uh, take off half of the patient's skull will relieve the pressure but the question is is whether these patients will do better in the long term and the literature really is kind of inconclusive you know of what the best way to manage these patients are so you know one of my interests is is, is to try to see you know if, if uh you know surgery versus you know medical management Really, the best way to, to treat people with these kinds of injuries.
0: Oh, well, interesting. Well, I'm glad to get to know you. Uh, thank you to my guest, Dr. Timothy Butler, a specialist in neurocritical care at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Common sports injuries and how they're treated. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. I'm with orthopedic surgeon Dr. Zachary Vredenberg. He's an assistant professor of orthopedic surgery at Upstate, and we're going to talk about some of the most common sports injuries. Welcome, Dr. Vredenberg.
3: Thanks for having me.
0: I'd like to start with upper body injuries. Um, how is it that people dislocate or break their shoulders? How does that happen?
3: So, uh, usually, with shoulder dislocations, you're looking at someone that has a fairly high energy injury. Uh, they're usually falling on an outstretched arm so that their arms above their head, although there's multiple different ways you can dislocate your shoulder. Um, you know, a lot of times we're seeing them in athletes, but it can also be from falling downstairs, from car crashes, things like that. Um, with fractures, you're usually talking about more of an impact to the shoulder. So, a lot of times we're thinking mountain biking or uh, a higher energy fall onto the shoulder. Um, uh, or or in the case of proximal humerus fractures, which are one kind of shoulder fracture, an elderly person falling on their shoulder with weaker bone.
0: So are th- these sound pretty painful. Are they painful injuries?
3: Yeah, you know, they're all to varying degrees and it depends on the energy. Uh, patients with shoulder dislocations, especially the younger, more active ones, They tend to recover uh, a lot quicker and can get back to doing their activities more quickly if they're not requiring a surgery. Um, So oftentimes those patients, you know, uh, can just get along with some over-the-counter pain medications, a little bit of therapy, and can get back out on the field or to to their activities. Whereas the patients with fractures, we usually need to have a little bit more time uh, of some relative immobilization.
0: So let me interrupt and ask you about dislocations. Uh, so there's not a break with that. That's just one of the bones being pulled out of its place?
3: Yeah, so a shoulder dislocation would be when the ball and socket joint uh, move out of place, specifically the ball moves out of place with the socket. Um, you oftentimes don't have a fracture or a break associated with that, but sometimes there are some fractures um, um, that do happen with that. Those are usually uh, 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 more minor but some, can sometimes require surgery. Um, uh It's usually more of a soft tissue injury to the shoulder, meaning you're hurting something called the labrum, which is like a little rubber bumper in the front or the back part of the shoulder. Or sometimes, especially with older people, you can injure your rotator cuff, which are the muscles that attach around your shoulder when you dislocate.
0: So for dislocations or or breaks, if it's something that requires surgery, is that something that's going to need to be done emergently right away?
3: Not in an emergent uh, sense, Uh, you know, we usually see these patients within a couple of days, uh, depending on what the injury actually was. You know, if you were in a car accident, we usually see those patients right away in the emergency room. But some people come in with these breaks or dislocations around the shoulder that, um, you know, that have happened a few days ago, went somewhere else. Um, And then we usually, if if we determine that it needs surgery, we usually try to get those done within a couple of weeks, just for the patient's perspective to, to kind of improve their pain faster and also, um, uh, to get them rehabbing and moving a little bit faster.
0: Now, do the treatment options differ depending on the age of the patient?
3: Uh, yeah, for each injury they do. Uh, for shoulder dislocations, just to for take an example, in younger patients, you're much more likely to have recurrent or repeat shoulder dislocations if you dislocate when you're younger. So if you're under the age of 20, there's an 80 or 90% chance that you'll dislocate your shoulder again. Now that doesn't mean that you need to have surgery, Um, But it's just one of the factors that we take in, uh, you know, into consideration. Uh, If you're an older patient, especially over the age of 50 or so, we say that if you dislocate your shoulder, you have probably a 50 percent or higher chance that you tore your rotator cuff uh, when you dislocate it. So that may require surgery. It's not necessarily the dislocation, but it's the damage that it does. Um, So there's different considerations for different age groups and also activity levels. So it's not just age is just a number for for us. You know, there's a lot of 50-year-olds that are still very active and for whatever the the injury or the ailment is, you know, would require a surgery when someone, you know, who's not quite as active but is younger may not.
0: So longer term, once you recover from the surgery um, years later, does that mean you're going to have arthritis in that bone?
3: Yeah, studies seem to show that if you have a dislocation to your shoulder that you do have a little bit higher chance of getting arthritis later in life. And, you know, having the surgery surgery as a young person uh, because of the shoulder dislocation, we don't necessarily know for sure that that's going to decrease that risk of arthritis. We really in sports medicine, a lot of our surgeries are are to to make you functionally better at the time of surgery. Um, and you know these longer term potential benefits are something that you know may or may not uh, come along with those as well.
0: Now what about someone who lifts weights regularly to keep their upper body strengthened? Do they have less of a? Is that a protective factor for them against?
3: Not necessarily. I mean, you know, when you if you go to the extreme of that, it's going to be harder to dislocate, uh, you know, a three hundred and fifty pound offensive lineman shoulder than a hundred pound, you know, uh, dancer. But, uh, you know, by for for your specific self, if you lift a lot of weights, I don't know how much it's going to help. You know, one specific person uh, decrease their chance of having dislocations. There's not a whole lot of protective things you can do before, you know, before the first time other than being active and and staying in good shape. It's really, uh, you know, getting in those provocative positions that cause the dislocations. That's the biggest risk factor.
0: Now, I've heard of something, I don't think it's a break, um, something called tennis elbow. And I've heard that people can get this even if they're not tennis players. So can you tell us what that is and what causes it?
3: Yeah, it's it's extremely common. And I actually usually don't see it. Or I, the, the more the people I see are not tennis players that have that. Uh, it's, it's a tendonitis on the outside part of your forearm right near your elbow. And it's mostly from uh, repeatedly lifting things and extending your wrist up in the air with weight on it. So even carrying a briefcase, carrying a laptop. Um, Things like that, carrying your, you know, even just your groceries or something repetitively is what usually uh, leads to this. And it's more of a tendon degeneration problem on the outside part of your elbow. Um, But it can also happen with tennis as well, obviously. Um, There's a lot of different, you know, conservative treatments for this, and it usually doesn't require a surgery. It usually goes away, but it can be a very annoying thing for patients and take a really long time to kind of burn out and get better.
0: This is Upstate's HealthLink On air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Zachary Vredenberg. We've been talking about upper body injuries, but now I'd like to ask you about some of the lower body injuries that you see. Um, when someone twists or rolls an ankle and it hurts and it swells up, how do you go about determining whether there's a break or a sprain?
3: So x-rays are the easiest thing. Um, But before even getting x-rays, you know, just uh, examining the patient, really seeing where their pain is, if it's really in their ankle, if it's in their foot, you know, you don't want to get too many x-rays and, uh, and, you know, subject patients to that um, when, you know, you really want to be certain where the pain is. So when you twist your ankle, you could have pain all the way up near your knee and have an injury up there, or you can have something all the way down in the base of your foot that's actually causing the injury. Um, So physical exam is first and foremost important. Then following that up with x-rays, if appropriate, um, which usually if patients are coming to us, they have enough pain and something bad enough is going on that that warrants an X-ray, especially if they're not able to put weight on that extremity.
0: So which heals faster, a break or a sprain?
3: <laughs> That's a very common question, uh, and it really depends on the patient. So in general, fractures take about six weeks uh, to heal fractures about the ankle. Um, it depends exactly what the fracture is, um, but in general, you're looking around six weeks or a little bit longer for the bone to actually start to really heal back in place. A lot of ankle sprains, people feel better in one or two weeks, uh, but there are some that patients are still really struggling with at six or eight weeks out from the injury. And there's actually two different kinds of major ankle sprains. There's a high ankle sprain and a low ankle sprain. And you see a lot of the athletes, uh, especially in the news, are having high ankle sprains and are having surgeries now for those. Um, And those are a little bit of a different animal. Those are usually a little bit more more severe and more painful and can take a little bit longer to, to get better from.
0: Well, you mentioned recovering from a break could be six weeks, but that's just from six weeks until you can walk on it again? Or, I mean, you're not going to be back to normal activities, are you?
3: Exactly. And it depends, you know, some of the some ankle fractures you can walk on right away and it's safe to walk on right away. And some of them you need to go in a cast for a certain period of time. Uh, and that just depends on the severity and if there's other associated ligament injuries. But that's correct. Even if you're if you're putting a cast on day one and six weeks later, you come out of the cast, you're not going to be normal at six weeks. So you're still going to usually need or want some therapy and need some time to kind of ease back into weight bearing and get back to normal activities. So even though, you know, it's important to stress that six weeks for the bone to heal does not mean six weeks for your body to feel normal again.
0: Well, you mentioned ligaments. So let's get into ligaments and tendons, uh, things like Achilles tendon tears, um, ACL um, tears in the knee. You probably see a lot of these, right?
3: Yes, and and so with with Achilles tendon tears, um, a lot of these tend to be your more recreational weekend athletes. Although you, again, you see professional athletes getting these too.
0: That's in the ankle as well, right? Correct. In the back of the Correct.
3: ankle. So that's in the back of the ankle. And the typical story is you're running and it feels like someone shot you in the back of the heel with a with a bullet or with a stone and you hear a loud pop and your ankle swells up. Um, and you know, I think people are surprised to hear that a lot of these can be treated safely without surgery. And a very high demand person who's very active or a, definitely a professional level athlete, a lot of times they'll fix these with surgery, but these can heal despite the tendon being completely torn. These do heal and give good functional results with conservative or non-operative treatment as well. Um, and, and you avoid a lot of the risks of surgery uh, around the ankle and around that part of the ankle specifically. So it's it's something that even though it sounds like a bad injury and is very painful at first, uh, a lot of times, um, you know, it's reasonable to treat that without surgery.
0: It sounds like the kind of thing that it doesn't really take much for it to, to tear or rupture. Is there any way to predict it or prevent it?
3: You know, some people with chronic tendinosis or degeneration in the tendon, you know, it may be at a little bit higher of a risk. Uh, And I think the same thing goes that we said earlier, staying in shape, you know, not going out and, you know, being a couch potato and then trying to go, you know, play a pickup football game uh, over Thanksgiving, those kinds of things where you're putting your body in positions that it's not normally and I think puts you at a a very large risk of the Achilles injuries.
0: If you've torn a ligament uh, and it either surgically is repaired or it, it repairs on its own, does that mean you're always going to have sort of a weakness in that area, or is it possible to build it back strong?
3: It's possible to build it back strong, and with a lot of these, uh, you know, talk, you know, ACL injuries, for instance, after surgery, a lot of those patients uh, never necessarily get back to exactly 100% same as the other leg, but get back to a high enough percentage of strength and functionality that, you know, you can't tell the difference between the two legs. Uh, If you didn't see the scars there, the patients can't tell the difference other than knowing that they had surgery on the one leg.
0: So a lot of these sports injuries that we've talked about um, can be treated without surgery, but you're an orthopedic surgeon. Do you still care for the patients who don't need surgery? But they, I mean, do they still need to come to a specialist for their injury?
3: Yes, absolutely. And, and depending on what it is, you know, we may need to see you more than once or sometimes with some more minor things, we only need to see you one time, but, you know, we'll keep tabs on you. And if, if you're having any issues, we'll see you back. Um, but, you know, that's what most of my practice and most of my partner's practices is conservative treatment and, you know, getting people back through therapy, through, you know, judicious use of injections uh, and over-the-counter medications to kind of get them back into an active lifestyle.
0: And it seems, I mean, you deal with a lot of injuries that don't happen during uh, nine to five weekdays. So I I know the orthopedic, the sports medicine people, at least see you see patients on the weekend as well, right?
3: Yeah. So, you know, in in non-COVID times, there'd be a lot of sports going on right now. We'd be covering games. We'd be, you know, taking care of the college and the high school athletes. So things are a little bit different now. But, yeah, there's definitely... A lot of weekend and night hours involved. And we have, you know, early morning office hours and after hours uh, at our at our office on Fly Road uh, to accommodate, you know, those kinds of injuries and other types of uh, after hours care.
0: Even though professional and amateur sporting um, events have sort of been curtailed in this time of COVID, are you still seeing regular people um, that sustain injuries such as these during the pandemic?
3: Yeah, definitely. We're still seeing a lot of people doing work on their house or people, you know, out, um, you know, playing water sports or recreationally, you know, there's still people out there getting injured. And it's definitely not the same as it would be. But uh, um, but, you know, a lot of what we see, again, is not the high school, college pro athletes. It's it's everyday people who are, you know, trying to get back to functionality and whose shoulder hurts because they did too much painting the other day or who, you know, was out playing with their. With their child and tripped and hurt their knee so we're still obviously seeing all those people
0: well thanks for sharing your information with us thank you to dr zachary bradenberg an assistant professor of orthopedic surgery at upstate i'm amber smith for upstate's podcast and talk show health link on air coming up next we'll explore bias in teaching From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Today, we're talking about a checklist that helps medical and health professions educators review their content for bias. Here to discuss her work on this subject is Dr. Amy Caruso Brown. She's a pediatric oncologist, bioethicist, and medical educator with a background in medical anthropology. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Brown.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: Can we begin by establishing what bias means? Yeah, so when, uh Broadly, bias
2: is just any inclination for or against something. Um, And usually we're thinking, or prejudice for or against something. And we're usually thinking about an an inclination that's not really based on evidence um, and and not sort of a valid bias. Um, But really, that it's a very simple construct. And many of these biases are actually probably cognitive shortcuts. So they're, they're ways that our brains actually evolved to process the huge amount. Amount of information that's coming in all the time, whether that's information from things we're reading and learning, or just information from interacting with other people. Um, so when we're trying to make decisions in healthcare, we often have a lot of different information that we need to synthesize pretty quickly, and we use these biases to try to process it faster than our brains would be able to otherwise.
0: So if I understand you correctly, I mean some of this is learned. It just is it's in it's part of you. The, the tendency
2: to have these cognitive biases is built into us. What exactly we become biased for or against is learned.
1: Okay.
2: Does that make sense? And when yeah. we're talking about medical education um, or health professions education in general, we're usually talking about four kinds of biases. So biases in who gets selected to be a learner or to be a medical student in the first place, or who gets selected to be a teacher, Um, so who gets admitted, who gets hired, bias in what kinds of content we actually present to our students, biases in how we teach, how we mentor, and how we evaluate our learners, Um, and then the biases that we as healthcare professionals and learners as new healthcare professionals display when they interact with patients and families, so how they treat those people.
0: So are these biases based on a person's race, ethnicity, gender, age? Are are we talking about sort of stereotypes?
2: Yeah, so we're, we're talking about all of those different characteristics that people automatically see, whether they realize they're seeing it or not when they interact with someone, and then the assumptions that they make. So it might be the assumption somebody makes when they interact with someone who looks Asian American to them, and the patient says, this is a common experience for doctors, and the patient says, wow, you speak English so well, because in that person's brain, they've put together not looking white with not being born in the United States or not speaking English as a first language, even though we know that's not true.
0: Well, I know your focus is on medical and health education, but do biases exist or pose a problem in other fields as well, do you think?
4: Yeah, they
2: really do. Um, and there's a lot of interesting data that, that we draw on and that I've drawn on in my work in medical education that comes from other fields, uh, interventions that have been studied and developed and tested by sociologists and social psychologists. Um, and I think we see it a lot in the news now, talking about law and criminal justice and how the biases play out in those fields. And they're they're learned too. They're, they're, they're taught and learned in the process of a police officer going through training or an attorney. Attorney learning, learning to be a district attorney, learning to be a prosecutor. Um, they show up in science, technology, engineering, and math, and there's actually a lot of cool interventions looking at gender bias in those fields um, and, and trying to address some of those issues.
0: So how can a teacher recognize his or her own biases?
2: Yeah, so that's a really good question. Uh, one of the first steps is just wanting to do that, is want be being ready in that stage to look critically at oneself. Um, and I think a big part of that is humility, which is something I try to teach my students really early when they're learning to be doctors, um, being willing to admit your own mistakes, to look back at an interaction. For me, it's whether it's a patient I saw or a lecture that I gave and really ask myself What went well? What didn't go well? What do I wish I'd done differently? What am I going to do next time? Um, And one thing I've started to do in my own practice before going in a room is, or working with a patient or with a student, is really thinking about what are things about this encounter that might bring out my biases? Um, Is there something about how I interact with this person that I find more difficult? Uh, And that's a transition to starting to ask ourselves the really hard questions about what biases do I actually hold about race or gender, uh, about ethnicity, immigration status. Uh, we, t- we talk about biases towards incarcerated patients now a lot more. So all, all of those things are, are, I think, harder to ask of myself than that first question, but that's the place to start. Um, and then there's so much in the literature now, so, so much in newspapers and other media where we can read firsthand accounts from people who have experienced bias themselves. And I think that's a good stepping stone to starting to have meaningful conversations with people who are different from ourselves, whether that's our students or our colleagues or people in our community, um, and to starting to step outside of our comfort zones and really listen to someone else's experience of bias.
0: Now, what about the biases that students may come to a class with? Is it the instructor's job to find those biases and make corrections?
2: Yeah, to some extent, um, and, and certainly the, the class I teach is an ethics and public health health policy class. We're very much talking about the social issues. So for me, I really feel like, yes, that, that is our job. To bring those out to talk about them. Um, and the way I do it in my class, so we, we do a case-based class where we'll give us we'll give students a situation. A patient comes to you with this concern or this problem. Um, what are you gonna do next? Here, here's where you work, and here's we we tell them to imagine you're you're a doctor in a rural area, you're working in a small town, you don't have a lot of other resources. What are you gonna do next? And the way we've designed the cases is that you'll inevitably make some assumptions as you go through the case. We do, we do it all the time. When we meet new people, we make assumptions about what their background might be or where they might be coming from. Um, But I've set up the cases so that later they get information that starts to challenge those assumptions. And we take a minute to say, okay, what did you, are you surprised by that new information? If you're surprised, what did you assume that makes you surprised now? Or what, what were you thinking about this patient? And, and, I hope in doing that, or I think in doing that and practicing that in the classroom, that when we go out and interact with patients, we'll be better prepared to question our own assumptions and to do that kind of reflection.
0: So, is the goal to strip a curriculum of all biases? Or, I mean, can you even do that? Or is the goal just to sort of be to acknowledge they exist?
2: Um, a little bit of both, and it, it goes back to thinking about four kinds of bias in education. Um, so, when it comes to selection and hiring, we, we'd like to strip them all out. We, we'd like to see that our students and our faculty reflect our communities by every demographic measure. I mean, that's that's definitely the goal. When we think about content it's hard because we we want to, but it's just not very realistic. And one of the limitations of medicine is that we're always learning new things and updating and replacing old information based on new evidence. So that means that right now, despite despite our very best efforts, we might be teaching things as biological facts that are actually still pretty deeply rooted in bias. Um, And I think that's, we see that happening in real time. I think of it when I think about how gender was taught 20 or 30 years ago and how, We pretty much in medicine accept gender as a spectrum now. And when I talk to my eight year old son and his friends, they're like, yeah, why would that ever be not an intuitive thing Um, that that they just can't imagine that a gender binary was so deeply rooted in biology? And we know a lot more now. Um, But those are the kinds of things that I think are really hard to strip out because we don't know what's wrong. We don't know what we don't know until we get that new evidence.
0: You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. This is your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Amy Caruso Brown about bias in teaching. She's a bioethicist and medical educator who has investigated this subject. She's also a pediatric oncologist. Now, in medical education in particular, why is there a danger in reinforcing stereotypes?
2: Yeah, so it changes how our students go on to take care of patients. And I wanna briefly talk about what I think is one of the best studies of this. Um, So the lead author was um, a researcher called Hoffman at the University of Virginia. And what they did, they took groups of students, and they gave them this list of biological differences between Blacks and whites, uh, the majority of which were false biological beliefs, because actually what we know now and and are starting to understand much better is that skin color is just a really crude proxy for family ancestry. And there's actually just as much diversity between two black patients or two white patients than between a black patient and a white patient in terms of genetic diversity. So many of these things that that people actually say say are true, like you'll ask them, do you think that black patients feel pain less acutely than white patients? And people actually rate that as true, even though it's totally false. And what they found was between the first and second year of medical school, students didn't become more well-informed about this topic. They didn't get more of these true-false statements right. They actually got more of them wrong. Um, And I think part of what's happening is we dump so much information on students. In their first years of medical training, that we will, will say things like, Black patients are at higher risk for hypertension, but we don't give them any context for that. We don't talk about is that due to poverty, is that due to access to healthcare? is it due to toxic stress from expo- chronic exposure to racism, which we now know does increase inflammation, rewires the brain, actually changes your, the epigenetic part of your code so that some of those changes can be passed on through the generations. Um, but we don't tell them all of that necessarily when we're giving these lectures. And so at the end of the first year, after they've heard all of these associations between race and disease, they actually think that race is more important in medicine than it is. Um, And then they took that same group of students and they gave them cases in which uh, the only thing that was changed about the case was the patient's race and asked them how they would treat that patient's pain. And they found that the more false biological beliefs someone held, the more likely they were to undertreat the pain of Black patients relative to white patients. And that's just one example. There's many, many, many more studies looking at how patients are treated differently, whether it's looking at the underdiagnosis of heart attacks in women because their presentations are different from the presentations of men. And for a long time, men were sort of the the gold standard in research and were over-enrolled in trials relative to women, so we didn't have that information. Um, So there's lots of examples of how not correcting those biases leads to people getting poorer care than they would have otherwise.
0: So you're not saying that it's not important to uh, teach about the differences, but it needs to be explained better.
2: And with a lot more humility about what we know and don't know, um, because there's there's at this point still more things about the human body that we don't understand than that we do understand. Um, and so much that we don't necessarily understand about the interactions between doctors and patients about what makes for good communication and a good encounter. So we need to talk about more of those things, too.
0: Have you looked at the instructors themselves in terms of their race or gender? To, is there a difference between the race of the instructor who's good at explaining this and and, and one that's not as good?
2: Um, no, for that one, I don't think it's about their race so much as that for some of these things are hard to talk about. Um, and, and we certainly know that In Black families are much more likely to talk to their children about race and talk to their children about race and racism early compared to white families who often avoid the topic or tell their children, we don't see color in this family, which of course we we know is a, a nice thing to say, but not true and ultimately leads to people being uncomfortable talking about it and acknowledging these differences. So I think what really makes an instructor good at it is is practice, is trying to speak about these things, is taking the time to dig into the research, Um, especially sometimes this is off the path of what the instructor usually teaches. Um, So if if your job mainly is talking about cell signaling and inflammatory proteins um, and how that might cause disease, to to take a step out and talk about how racism might contribute to inflammation is a little bit different. and it takes a lot of a lot of willingness to err and to listen to students when they tell us, you know, that wasn't very sensitively handled or when that was said, I really felt that 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 was directly attacking me or attacking people who look like me. Um, I think that, I, I think that's really tough. And what I encourage faculty is, is to talk to have an open dialogue with their students um, and be willing to step out on a limb a little bit because we don't get anywhere by avoiding these topics.
0: Now, I know you have a checklist to help educators review their content for bias. Can you tell us about that? Um, I know it's available at tinyurl.com slash upstatebiaschecklist. How does it work?
2: Yep, so the idea behind the checklist... Students, especially students of color, often feel that they are disproportionately burdened with bringing these things to light, with talking about, you know, when when somebody said that in class, it made me really Mm -hmm. uncomfortable, or when when they mentioned that race-based association for that disease and didn't do any explanation um, and didn't talk about racism or about poverty That was really bothersome to me. And what I wanted to do with the checklist was first to take that off of the students um, so that it wasn't their job to evaluate the curriculum in that way. Um, And I was thinking a lot about, we use checklists a lot in medicine um, as as a way to, it's actually a way to address those cognitive biases that I was talking about in the beginning, that if you have a checklist, you won't take as many shortcuts because you're going question by question did I do this? Did I do this step? Did I do this step? Um, So I was taking that idea and applying it to medical education. When you go through the checklist, it will ask about these different demographic things we were talking about, like race or sexual orientation or gender, um, and whether that's addressed in the lecture. Um, And it might be directly addressed in the lecture, like if it's a lecture about women's reproductive health, uh, it might be indirectly addressed uh, if there's a case study included in the lecture. And of course, once it once we present. case of a patient, we're going to be bringing up things like this is a 46-year-old woman and so on. Uh, So, it asks them, is that in your lecture? And then a series of follow-up questions about how it's being presented and why, and could anything that's being presented be interpreted as promoting bias, shame, stereotype, or stigma? So in the group of questions about race, for instance, it asks whether we're implying biological differences that may not be really there. We know from other studies of medical education that that's really common, um, giving giving the race based association or the epidemiology without talking about the context. Um and then things like we know that when we talk about disability, we often suggest that patient's quality of life is much poorer than it actually is or, when, or how they rate their own quality of life. When we talk about patients with disabilities or patients who are much older geriatric patients, we forget to talk about normal sexuality or to teach about normal sexuality. So in going through the questions, it prompts us to think about some of those things that we know are common biases um, and that lead to students not knowing about those topics. Uh, so for instance, One of the things students brought up many, many years ago was that much more of the curriculum was spent on Viagra and drugs for erectile dysfunction than on contraception, even though at a population level, contraception is a much bigger um, and more impactful topic than drugs for ED. Uh, So that was one thing that by by using the checklist systematically across the whole curriculum, we can start to see gaps like that.
0: And this upstate bias checklist is available for anyone to look at. It's it's out there for everyone, right?
2: Yep, it's available for everyone. So we are using it across the College of Medicine at Upstate, we're talking to probably about a dozen other schools right now um, who have reached out to tell us that they wanna use it, but it's publicly available so anybody can use it. Um, And if there's other, for other institutions that want to be able to see the results, then I've worked with them or I'm working with them now to set up their own database so that they can screen their own curricula.
0: Alright, well thank you so much to Dr. Amy Caruso Brown. She's a pediatric oncologist, bioethicist, and medical educator at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, Help Link on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection.
4: Some of our most visual and poignant poems are those describing family members' sibling love. Here are two from our latest issue. First is Jeremy Gad from Australia, who offers us a portrait of opposites when young, but now finding common ground. Here is We Were. We were orange and apple, yin and yang, chalk and cheese as children, quiet to your loud, near to your far, circle to your square, sharing only unruly hair and shelter from the storm of parental repression and mutual amusement at our teenage indiscretions. But now, more bonded in dying than in life by a genetic disease, we share more laughter than depression more love than any previous sibling aggression. Zoe Fitzgerald Beckett is from Maine and she takes us back and forth in time to pay tribute to sister's love. Here is Sleeping With My Sister. We were sleeping together again, rain drumming on the roof, rain and tears and torrents, and the salt and sweat of love's labor to save her, to vanquish all fears and the monster growing in her brain Our childish fears often drove us both out of bed in the past. Her fear of everything. My fear our parents might disappear. We'd meet in the dark and cling together, crying and comforting in whatever bed would have us. Our grown-up fears were in bed with us that night, silencing the hard questions. What is her brain tumor doing? Is there nothing left we can do? Truth banished to the darkest corner. No answers but the drumbeat of rain on the roof. She was the beauty of the family, the baby sister who followed me everywhere. Sure, I knew everything. She always asked, where are you going? Can I come too? I'd say yes, sometimes, or no, leave me alone. That night I prayed, don't ever leave me. The rain was slowing, her voice a drifting mist. She said, listen, it sounds like music. What does it mean? Knowing nothing, I could only ask what? She said the back and forth, the back and forth, and I could only whisper, "O oh pioneer, o oh dear heart."
0: Been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, a new clinical trial for a potential treatment for lupus. If you missed any of today's show, or for more consumer health podcasts, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org, or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on Air is produced by Jim Howe with sound engineering by Stephen Shaw. This is your host, Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.